Hey, this is John Ridley. Welcome to Doc Talk. Every week, we talk to some of the industry's most outstanding filmmakers, industry leaders, and individuals who are really changing the world one documentary at a time. I'm, I'm joined as, as I, I want to say always, but that's, a, that's an absolute, as I usually am, uh, by my better half, Matt Carey. Uh, Matt, you were away at the, uh, the, id, uh, the idfo, that's not correct. I'm like um, Google, sound like George <laughs> Bush. IDFA, which you and I just learned, uh, the, the long name is the International Documentary Film Festival, uh, Amsterdam. It is not the International Dairy Farmers Association. Although, I don't know, maybe you would have gone and you would have checked that out. But um, a lively festival, I imagine I was not there, as it always is. But um, you came back with a, a slew of really interesting interviews. Yeah, it's the 36th year of IDFA, as everybody calls it. It's the biggest documentary festival in the world and, and really the most important. I don't think anyone would dispute that. So it attracts really the biggest names in documentary, new work from around the world. A lot of people who are contending for Oscars are there. They know that the Oscar shortlists are coming up soon, so they want to be in IDFA with their films. It's a platform for some extraordinary work. And I, I did get to speak with a bunch of really notable filmmakers, some well-known to our audience, I think, like Roger Ross Williams, who's got his film stamp from the beginning, and also the Oscar-nominated Nicole Noonan, who took her film The Disappearance of Cher Height there. Also spoke with Juan Palacios, the director of As the Tide Comes In, Mohamed Jabali, Palestinian filmmaker who won the Best Director Award at IDFA for Life is Beautiful, and Maciek Hamela, the Polish director of In the Rear View. So that's coming up. Uh, it was in the field, John, in the field reporting. So the, occasionally you hear a little bit of background noise. <laughs> and, you know, we we started off with a clap to, to sync the audio. So I was trying to get a handle on all of that. But uh, hopefully the substance will come through of hearing from these very notable filmmakers. So I'm going to clap, which is something okay. to my editor guy. I hope that was loud enough. Roger Ross Williams, the director of Stamp from the Beginning. It's so great to see you in Amsterdam. This is your sort of your adopted hometown, one of them. It is my adopted hometown. I've lived here um, for 11 years, you know, off and on. I uh, live in New York and in Amsterdam, but um, it's my hometown festival. It is. And you're here with Stamp from the Beginning, which is based on the extraordinary book by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi. Uh, tell us about playing it here in Amsterdam uh, for an international audience, which uh, should be aware of everything that's in the book. It's not just an American story. It's about uh, anti-blackness that extends well beyond North America, clearly. It's definitely a global story. Um, we premiere tonight... Uh, so it's going to be really interesting to hear the reaction. Uh, I think knowing the Dutch as well as I do, because um, I'm married to one, the Dutch love to wag their finger at someone else. They love to look down on another place. So they love looking and criticizing, looking at and criticizing America. So they will have a great time with this uh, film. Uh, they will probably deny their own 
huge instrumental role in the slave trade because they don't teach it in schools here. They don't talk about it. They're like, you know, we're colorblind. We don't really... Um, um, but the Dutch West India and the East India Company were the originals, uh, massive traders in African um, slave trade. And the film was about to premiere on Netflix. The film premieres on Netflix on November 20th. Um, very exciting. And it's great to bring it to a global audience. You know, Dr. Kendi is one of the most banned authors in America. Both his books, um, How to Be an Anti-Racist, um, Stamped and Stamped from the Beginning, are highly banned books. He's enemy number one of the American far right and uh, a, you know, target for that. So the great thing about Netflix is that you can't ban Netflix. So they can't ban Netflix in Texas or Florida. Um, so uh, people will get to see this film and, you know, have a conversation and judge for themselves. I have one of the banned books with me right here, Stamped yes. from the Beginning, which cannot see it in audio, but it's a very, it's over 600 pages uh, with, with notes. How do you adapt that? <laughs> into a, a single film. Yeah. Well, it's really the history of racist ideas in America and how racist ideas are, you know, how it infects our brains, basically, um, and how uh, these racist ideas turn into policy and how, but it's also about the resistance against these racist ideas and when there's resistance against the racist ideas, how they morph into another form. Um, and it's a constant war, basically. And in this war, there is the basic premise that um, there is something wrong with black people, that black people are inferior to, um, to the white race, which is not really a race that's also made up. Um, and... Uh, it chronicles that starting way back in the mid-1400s in Portugal, which is where the film starts, and takes us right up to the present day. So <laughs> a, a daunting task. Um, and it was, it was a, um, obviously it was challenging, um, but it was also, I love it. For me as a filmmaker, I always want a big challenge. I love a challenge. It is the biggest documentary film festival in the world. The timing of it is also very important because it's about a month before the Oscar shortlist uh, comes out. And so everyone pretty much is here who would like to be part of that conversation. Yeah, you know... Um, and of course you are, I should say, as people don't know, you are a member of the Academy, former governor on the Board of Governors. Yes, Um so when I was elected to the Board of Governors nine years ago, I guess now, there were very few international members in the documentary branch of the Academy. There were very few people of color um, in the documentary branch of the Academy. And my mission, it was why I was elected, because I was elected coming out of the storm of Oscar So White. Uh, and the Academy had to do something and they had to change. So they created something, they called in some advisors, some high-profile advisors who came up with a plan called uh, the A2020 Initiative. We were allowed to invite an unlimited number of people 
into our to branch. To become members. Yeah. I immediately walked into the uh, executive committee meeting of the documentary branch, and I saw that it was a lot of white... It was the same as the academy. It was mostly white men, a few women, um, but mostly white men running the documentary branch, and we didn't... And the, and the branch was majority white male. So I was like, okay, well, I've got a first thing I have to do, I have to disrupt, I, I'm gonna disrupt everything, was to change the executive committee. Now the exec committee is, it's mostly all women, and a, mostly a lot of women of color, um, and it's a completely different executive committee. When I booted out all the straight white men and, and um, brought in all these people of color and women into the executive committee, uh, obviously, Certain people weren't happy. But the people who came in could not believe they were sitting in a seat of power. They were in shock. They were really in shock. Now we have 700 members, and we're one of the biggest branches in the academy, and we're the most diverse, definitely the most diverse branch in the academy, and it's reflected in our nominees for sure. Oh, absolutely. And, but we also have a big effect in who, who wins Best Picture. And so the reason, you know, why something like Parasite can win Best Picture is because of the documentary branch, because, because we have all these international members who are voting for films like Parasite. Yeah, that makes sense. And one of the, the people that was invited in, in that time was Maite Alberde, the Chilean filmmaker. And then within about a year of joining, she's an Oscar nominated for The Mole Agent. And uh, I know that you were at a reception for her just the other day. I gave her the award, Visionary Award, at Doc NYC. I gave Maite the Visionary Award because Maite is a representative of the type of filmmaker that I got to invite into the branch and a direct example of, of type of film that we would never have acknowledged, that gets acknowledged, and she, she gets praise, and, and, and so she should, because she's a very talented, incredible filmmaker, that we would never have known about if, if we didn't have this initiative. So Oscar So White did do something good in that it allowed me the opportunity to come in there and disrupt the uh, documentary branch, and really, and also disrupt the larger academy. Well, Roger Ross Williams, thank you so much for joining us and telling us about Stamp from the Beginning and also about IDFA. It's been uh, really enlightening, so appreciate it. Yes, you got a whole history there. <laughs> so, Nicole Noonan, you have made an appearance for the disappearance of Share Height at IDFA. <laughs> yeah, I'm so happy to be here. The screening was uh, last night. Uh, right? Uh, yesterday afternoon, yeah, at the Cinema Eye Theater. It was wow. incredible. And this is my first time seeing the film with the European audience, so I wasn't really sure how folks would respond to Cher Height and her story, especially given that so much of the story in our film is about the American cultural reaction to Cher Height's findings. But it was, it was fascinating. So did you detect a slight different reaction in Europe to, to the film? Well, one thing that was fascinating to me is that many women uh, my age and younger came up to me and said that they had read the Height Report as young women. And actually men, men too. I had men coming up to me uh, after the screening yesterday and saying that they had read the Height Report. And um, I think that there, there has not been the sense of kind of um, 
forgetting and maybe even that kind of puritanical shame that sometimes Americans have around discussions of sexuality, which I think plays a role in the disappearance of Cher Height, why she disappeared, you know? But here people don't, I don't think they carry that shame. They carry the remembrance of what she did to open up um, society's discussion of sexuality and female pleasure in particular. And so I I think um, there was that sense, but there was also a sense that, you know, the, the misogyny and the kind of core issues that the film and the Height Report address are still very vital and important to people here, even though they're not dealing with the same kind of hardcore backlash against women's rights and um, rollback of women's reproductive freedoms that we are in the United States. You're, you're in the best of fest section, yeah. right, which is really, really prestigious because I was speaking with Orwa Nairabi before the festival began, the artistic director. Of course, that section is reserved for the films they think of as the best of the year. So it's an in, indeed a great honor. I mean, I'm so honored. I This is actually the first time I've had a film be programmed here at IDFA, and it's been kind of a dream of mine for a long time. And to be in that section and to have them be, you know, promoting the film the way they are is, is really an honor. The film is even though it's an um, an historical film at this point, you know, about the 70s and the 80s, I think we worked really hard to craft it so that it would be in conversation in a really urgent way with the cultural moment that we're in. And I think that it is. You earned an Oscar nomination for your previous film, Crip Camp, that you directed with Jim Lebrecht. I'm just wondering how this go-round, if you will, an award season compares so far to that. I mean, it is, it's extraordinary what you filmmakers do of hopscotching around the globe. I feel like I'm carrying, you know, I'm carrying the legacy of Share Height with this project, and I'm carrying the hopes and dreams of everyone on our team who worked so hard. So I feel like it's a real privilege and an honor to be even in the position to be able to do this, though, to, though the jet lag is overwhelming sometimes. But it's very exciting. And also, you know, Jim Lebrecht and I, we did do an Oscar campaign for Crip Camp, which was very exciting, but most of it was on Zoom because of the pandemic. Um, we had been at True False and at the Museum of Modern Art and at Sundance, and then all of a sudden, everything shut down. So, in a sense, this is my first go around with this. The experience of being able to come to a place like IDFA and, um, and experience the film with people from different cultural backgrounds and different perspectives. Um, you know, I've, I've been all over the country and people's responses to share height have varied a lot, actually, even state by state. Um, so I think personally, like, especially since we really made our film to make Cher a huge cinematic character, kind of star of her own life story, um, and put so much effort into the aesthetics and the visual aspect of the film, just to see it sit in a theater and see it projected in and of itself uh, with an audience is a tremendous thrill for me, and I sit through it almost every time. Welcome back to Doc Talk and our report from IDFA, the International Documentary Festival Amsterdam the biggest documentary film festival in the world. We've been speaking with some of the notable directors who brought their work to the festival, the 36th edition of IDFA. We're going to continue those conversations now with Juan Palacios, director of As the Tide Comes In, Mohamed Jabali, director of Life is Beautiful, 
and Matcha Camello, the director of the award-winning In the Rear View. A marker. Oh, that was a bad one. <laughs> Let me What's do wrong it. with the man? I can't. All right. You're a filmmaker. Matcha Camella, the director of In the Rear View, which is playing at IDFA. Welcome to Doc Talk. Explain what the film is about, because some in the listening audience won't have seen it. But uh, this is, you know, you are, are Polish. Poland obviously borders Ukraine when the war broke out. I remember you telling me at Cannes that kind of the Polish society really mobilized in a way and, and had great concern. And it was a real effort to try to help people cross the border from Ukraine into Poland and, and reach safety in the middle of Russian bombardment. But explain then how your documentary came about. It's true. It's actually one of the topics that the film uh, touches is how strong neighborhood friendships are forged in face of common evil threats. And uh, this film is also about that. You raised money, you got a van, and you were kind of like a, almost a first responder where you drove into Ukraine to get people out. So you, were, you did not have your filmmaker hat on at that point. You had your humanitarian hat on of like, I got to do something to help these people. True. I, uh, I removed my filmmaker hat uh, <laughs> right at the beginning of the invasion, I let go of some some uh, projects I had uh, in process and just started driving. And from the moment, basically, that I that I put up a first Facebook post about about the first family and three students uh, that I brought to Warsaw, just people started calling me, and it, that never stopped. And it just I kind of went after this and went further and further into Ukraine. Uh, getting first uh, friends and family of friends out, and then uh, total strangers. And I was part of a very, very large movement of people just like me who, who, who decided to take a break from their ordinary lives to, to go and, uh, and volunteer as drivers, as uh, you know, people packaging stuff, uh, people distributing humanitarian aid, people cooking in kitchens. Uh, uh, you know, there were a lot of, this war has a lot of fronts. Then you decided at some point, maybe a few weeks into to doing this kind of transport, to film within inside the van. And, and so I think the viewers of the film don't realize it initially necessarily, but you're driving and there's a camera rolling and then people are talking and, and sharing their experiences and their stories. And uh, it's an interesting form of filmmaking to do it that way. What was the main challenge for me was to really understand if we can make this film within the car and at the same time without a main protagonist. Uh, this, was the main, this was the main challenge. This hasn't really been done, and I was afraid that maybe this could not uh, hold a, a feature film length. It turned out otherwise, I hope, and, uh, and well, the, the festival run we've had uh, has kind of prov proven, uh, um, proven us right that it's possible, um, but it was the, it was the most challenging part in the, in the one-year editing process that we had. <clears throat> Your film just got uh, a U.S. distributor. Congratulations on that. It is part of the Oscar race, and so it'll get a theatrical release and, um, and, and a push for, for Oscar attention. 
Well, we'll see how that that goes. Uh, it's a long, it's a it's a long process, and um, and I think uh, uh, you know I'm I'm doing this for the first time. It's all new experience. Uh, we're glad we're uh, we'll be able to show the film to American audience. Uh, we've only so far shown the film at uh, Chicago Film Festival, and now it was part of the winner's circle of Duck NYC recently. Uh, so I'm looking forward to screening it uh, in other parts of America where I spent uh, a chunk of my uh, childhood. Yeah, in Texas, right? In Do Texas, I remember right? Yeah, exactly. In Austin, Texas and in Davis, California. Wow, that's amazing. And of course, you spent some really interesting years in France. When went there without speaking any French, you picked up French. So you are a very resourceful person. You know, like uh, many people from Poland, uh, since uh, not many people speak Polish, um, it's true. Uh, uh, France was uh, even a harder experience since uh, my French was uh, almost non-existent. Uh, when I came to the U.S., uh, I also didn't really speak English. Uh, I was 10 years old, but um, I found a lot of help from the local community that uh, that helped me and my sister integrate uh, very fast. Uh, what has been the reception for for the film and your and your estimation here in in Amsterdam? It's been very emotional. A lot of uh, people coming. Who have been involved in uh, in uh, receiving uh, uh, refugees? A lot of uh, people of Ukrainian descent coming to our screenings as well. We had uh, uh, almost full house uh, uh, on the last screening, and I'm hoping we can fill up the Tushinsky One legendary theater uh, tomorrow as well. Thank you, Maciek Amela, so much for speaking with us, the director of In the Rear View. Thank you, Matt, for having me. And uh, see you soon in theaters in the U.S. Mohamed Jabali, the Palestinian director of Life is Beautiful, which is making its world premiere at IDFA. Ambulance, which was your earlier film, in a way that's the backdrop to Life is Beautiful because you were working on that in Norway, and then the border to Gaza was closed. So you were basically stranded in Norway. Explain what Life is Beautiful is about. It's certainly the fact that you became a stateless person. From the moment I got to, to Norway, it was only like for a short, supposed to be for a short visit, one month, and then just like go back and return to Gaza and continue my life. And then, like, this moment, like, when, when I realized that the border closed, I ended up, like, having nothing to do, like, in Norway. And that's when I turned back to my own footage that I brought with me, and I start looking at it, just finding a way to... I was urged, I felt the urge that I should tell the story to the world. And also because, like, I didn't, the world didn't know what was happening, since also it was shortly two months after these attacks, and was, like, the 2014, it was, like, when the ceasefire was announced end of August, and then shortly after, like, two months later, I, I was in Norway already. And that became kind of the my dilemma, my limbo of life, and not knowing what's happening and what's hiding from me, for me. So I didn't wait the border to open, I started making the film, and then... It became ambulance. It was like it was shown. It was important work, and I was hoping by making that film that 
the war will stop or I will never witness any other word or any war uh, after that. And sadly, it keeps repeating itself. If you watch Ambulance, like it's kind of you will feel that you're living this time. Being stuck in Norway, of course, give me opportunity to be able to continue finishing my film. And at the same time, it wasn't that should be, it shouldn't be the normal. <laughs> it's not the normal way of like, like making a film. Then the whole like uh, situation changed. Maybe seek asylum because this is the situation you're stuck. And it wasn't an option for me. It was like I then I decided to apply for the artist visa. And eight months later, I got it. So I was waiting. The border was closed. The whole 2000 f- end of 2014 and 15 till. Uh, 2016, and then start opening like a few days a month. I also made a decision from the beginning to to say I'm going to document everything that was happening to me. I didn't know what's going to happen. So I said to myself, and I put this a challenge to document basically my diary and became kind of a series of moments that been developed over these years. And I didn't know at some point, I said maybe I will use this materials, but it was like, when you live the moment, and that's why also some of the footage are very raw and not, you know, like cinematic. Yeah. What is what you know, like it's not <laughs> yeah. when not you document. Yeah. yeah, and you have to document. You know, to document a moment that doesn't. Maybe you you have a, your phone, and that's maybe enough. So, and that's why I felt kind of the importance also of um, finding a way to document these moments, and then later realizing this is like. My story being in Norway turned into like a, it's kind of, I saw it as a film. So I wanted to spread this hope, even though like sometimes hope is hard. Like it's difficult to see us in a moment that we're living in now. You wound up being in Norway for, for years. They were denying you the visa because you didn't have a film degree, but you are a filmmaker. <laughs> so it took a long time to resolve that, but also that they didn't accept your Palestinian passport. Yeah, that I mean, also, like, yeah, it's also for the, like as a Palestinian. I mean, for me, it was I was a bit shocked when I realized that I'm a stateless. I never thought in Gaza or in Palestine, I'm a Palestinian in Gaza, and wherever I go, I'm I'm this person. And then, <laughs> and then, like, go coming to Norway, like applying for a new visa, or like, and then, like, hey, I cannot choose Palestine. And that's for me, like, what does that mean? Like, Because there's like a, a drop-down menu of countries yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then no Palestine. Palestine. And then when you write or type Palestine, it shows a stateless. And that's a more painful, like when you wanted to force writing, even writing, not to choosing, writing it, it shows a stateless. Like you, you saw can't also write like, it in. No. Yeah. So that was so extra pain that to carry on and also try to like fight for yourself as a filmmaker and then like as a your identity as a Palestinian. When will you be able to return to Gaza? I think the moment that the border open, I will go and be hug my family. This is what I want. I mean, I mean, I I feel like I've been I've been trying for three days. Finally, while I'm joking to my friend, I'm telling them I'm I'm trying to call my friends now. I maybe I will try now. Maybe it will pick up. And it picked up like one hour ago. I was trying for three days to call them and not knowing anything about them, not receiving a text message. Because the whole communication and the connection is down. And hearing my the voice of my dad, I never heard my dad's voice with this painful level. I never. And for me, like, to carry this also, to keep answering people and, like, trying... 
of course we need to I needed to recharge this energy and keep that's why I it's being saying not I'm not okay it's against my nature that's why I really want <laughs> I want everybody to be okay I wanted always to say I'm okay even though it's like even if I'm not okay I want to say I'm okay just to so to show the strength of myself also like I don't need to to answer so that's why I feel it's an important to keep insisting in our right and that's that's it Muhammad Jabala it's it's been a pleasure to speak with you, and your film is Life is Beautiful. Hopefully always will be beautiful, and we see all this light. <laughs> Thank you so much for speaking with us, and congratulations on the film being here at IDFA. We're with Juan Palacios, the director of As the Tide Comes In, making its world premiere at IDFA. Thank you for being with us. Uh, how exciting has it been for you to... To bring your film to IDFA, it's, it's such a prestigious festival. And uh, as we were talking, you know, people, the, the cinemas are full. I mean, they're full for your film last night, the world premiere, and also today. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Uh, uh, it's um, IDFA, yeah. It's, it's a place where I've, I've been watching so many films, like uh, before making my own films. So it's, it's always been like uh, a festival that I've been like looking up to. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, I couldn't think of a better place to have our world premiere than the main competition of, of this festival. And also, like, uh, the premiere was at Tuchinsky One, which is this emblematic theater. Uh, that was last night, and it was pretty much a full house. So it was, yeah, it was, it was truly a dream come true. You're, you are from Spain. The film, though, was shot in a very remote area of Denmark on an island so explain, tell us what uh, As the Tide Comes In is about. I've been living in Denmark for, for the last 10 years. So, uh, yeah, uh, that's my connection with the country. Uh, in order to get to the island, you have to go through this road that gets flooded twice a day. So actually, a lot of tourists, they don't know about this and they sometimes they get stuck. Some people have some people have died, actually, on, on that road. It's, 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 it's risky and it's quite peculiar. So, um, yeah. It's also like, I guess, for a country like Denmark, you know, like such a developed country as Denmark, it's it's quite peculiar to find these kind of like remote, uh, rural places. So we have some music in the background. They're doing a rehearsal of yeah. some kind. So it's kind of nice to have a little music bed. <laughs> I like it. Kind of your main character is a really interesting, unusual guy. In some ways, not that expressive, but he's... He's kind of a bachelor farmer who would prefer not to be a bachelor. But it's very hard to lure anyone out there <laughs> to come and live with him uh, and share his life. But talk, talk about this. Yeah, uh, this man. yeah. I think he's a bachelor that doesn't want to be a bachelor. <laughs> but uh, also he's a farmer that doesn't want to be a farmer, in fact. Um, what, I, what I found attractive about this character, uh, Gregas, is that uh, I think he holds a lot of contradictions. Uh, because on one hand, I mean, the island for him is like there is a strong sense of belonging, and like uh, his identity, uh, uh, it's so much uh, attached to the island, to the place. At the same time, it's it's a place that he wanted to live when he was younger. I mean, he had the dream of becoming a pilot. Uh, he really was into birds, so maybe like even becoming like an ornithologist or something like that was one of his dreams. However, in the end, like he ended up like spending um, 
his whole life on, on the island as a farmer, as just taking care of the farm that uh, he got inherited from uh, his parents. So, uh, yeah, there is like, I think there is like this kind of like love-hate relationship with, with the place. And you spent, you were telling the audience, or you spent like three years there, and you were saying like kind of up to your you know, waste practically in, in mud a lot because it, it does flood basically all the time. I mean, it's very, very muddy. So this was not the easiest filming conditions for you. It it wasn't. We spent a great deal of time uh, wearing this, this thing that in Danish they call it velas. It's like this very long uh, pants made of like plastic. So, you know, yeah. they are like waterproof. It's I like they might, I think they might call them gators. Gators, yeah. I could have that wrong, but... No, yeah. So but it, I know what you're talking yeah. about, yeah. So I think fishermen wear them and like... Yeah. yeah, so so we're like basically wearing those almost all the time. Uh, because often like, I mean, in order to get the right shot, we would have to, you know, get in the mat or in the water. Like there's one shot uh, when we were filming the storm we were like we were having. I mean, the water we, it was reaching up to our uh, up to our hips. We were. It was January. It was very cold. It was a storm, and we. But the right shot in order to film the island and the water going towards the island, we had to be from the sea perspective. We had to be in the water. So yeah, um, there were a lot of examples like that. Uh, we spent a lot of time also like walking in cow shit <laughs> at at uh, Gregas's farm. Uh, like yeah, it's like there are layers <laughs> and layers. The glamour of, of documentary film. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Where do you know where you will take the film next? And maybe it's too early to talk about distribution for it. Uh, and but maybe you know where you hope to. I think the context of uh, the festival is is a great a great place to kind of start, like uh, getting some. Um, different deals. So, I mean, after the screening last night, we were approached by, by other festivals, a um, couple of them in Asia, actually, which is it's very nice to kind of like uh, be appreciated by uh, by a programmer that, you know, belongs to a completely different reality from, from this little island in, on, in Denmark. So that's nice. I mean, it was very nice to see like, yeah, there is like a connection, even like someone from that far away can actually like connect yeah. with the film. Um, and, um, yeah, so I, I guess, like, you know, we'd love to show it in other festivals. And then my producer, he's just uh, closing this deal with a sales agent. Okay. Uh, as we right. speak, I think. That's uh, great. Yeah. So, yeah, let's see. All right. Well, congratulations. And I certainly hope that it will go to CPH Docs because the people in Denmark need to see it, too. Yeah, I hope so, too. I hope so, too. Yeah. Well, Juan Palacio, it's, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. The, the film is As the Tide Comes In, which made its world premiere at IDFA. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Well, congratulations to all of those filmmakers at IDFA and Mohamed Jabali went on to win the Best Director Award for his film Life is Beautiful at IDFA. And uh, some outstanding work there, as there always is. John, you've got a documentary coming up in our next episode of Doc Talk that you're very excited about. So am I. It's a really beautiful piece of work. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm so excited every week. You know, the, the docs that we put on here are, are, are films and storytellers that we love. Um, but Elaine Sheldon made a, a film, King Cole, that I think is exceptional. It's beautiful and as I talk about with her, really upended a lot of my expectations and biases that I 
found that I had um, about Appalachia and about the coal industry and about the individuals who are there. Powerful film, beautiful film. It's a really terrific conversation. Look forward to that next week on Doc Talk. Thank you.